book that's really awesome, been in the book of Colossians. Um, I am jumping in in chapter 2. If you haven't been with us in college ministry, uh, we're in verse 16. Jake got to preach through whatever last week, and so that's kind of where we are. So um, I I think I'm going to set the stage this way. Let me tell you a little bit about this text. What I'm going to be with you tonight is a little bit just kind of raw and off the cuff. The reason is because this passage is really not that deep. It's not that challenging to really uh, understand the gravity of this thing. So I'm going to be a little bit raw with you. It's also very similar to what you heard Jake say last week. Matter of fact, it'll springboard from verse 8. Because last week you heard this, this, this passage that simply says Christ is all in all. Christ is fully sufficient. Verse 8, um, Jake talked about this, and I, and I was here last week, so uh, that there's this thing kicking you captive by the philosophies and the elemental spirit uh, teachings of the world. And so there's this idea that we're building on, and it's going to come to a culmination in this little chapter. There, you're going to hear a phrase that some, they had kind of had a taboo language going on, and there's some really cool things you're going to hear. But, but first of all, what I want to do is, here's the problem with this passage. The problem is not that we're going to have trouble understanding it. It's pretty simple. Here's the problem. The problem is this passage has a tendency to stay up here and not travel down here. If this passage stays up here to you, it's a fail. This passage has to travel down here. So I've prayed for you. That's the best thing I can do. And I'm going to try to to, to show you the, the heart level of some of these things because this passage is easy to understand It's easy to get up here. It's really hard to get down here. Because this is something that we naturally gravitate towards, thinking we're doing good things, but in reality we probably are setting back the greatest thing that we might pursue, which is our relationship with God. So I have to tell you this story that that launches us into the passage. Um, My wife and I have been married like, I don't know, somewhere between like five and 15 years. Somewhere in there, really, yeah, it's great. So, it is great. <laughs> Sounded really bad. I don't really know. It's somewhere in there. It's like 10, 11 years. And when we were dating, uh, so I started dating my wife, and her name is Brittany. And when I started dating Brittany, I really liked this girl. And about a month or two in, I knew I really liked this girl. And a month or two in, I knew that this thing was going well. And I knew that this girl was someone who I could spend the rest of my life with. Like, it was very obvious to me. And so I decided that I was going to help the relationship along. Jared, take notes and don't do this. I was going to help the relationship along, and I was going to help things go further faster, okay? So what I did two months in, by the way, two months in, this girl's from California. I just kind of met her. I met her through a swim teammate person that was a leader at Student Ministries, and here we are, and we're in this relationship, and it's going well. Oh, my gosh, I took her to this flagship Starbucks in Dallas. I only got lost three times. I really impressed her. I felt like things were going great. And then along the way, she's kind of talking to me about, like, decor and things, so I acted like I, yeah, okay, knew what she was talking about. And she started talking often about this chandelier. She wanted a chandelier for her room. And she wanted a chandelier, and she wanted to hang it over the chair she sat in when she would read. And so I knew that I could add a little something to our relationship and make it go further, faster. So here's what I did. I researched chandeliers. 
because after all, that's what she told me. And every year on her birthday, I used to travel to, to Austria. And so I was gone on her birthday every year. But this was the first time we were dating. So it's kind of that weird, like, do I buy her a gift or not? I mean, is it, you know, it's kind of weird. But I'm going to buy her one. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get her sister in on the deal. I'm going to go buy her the most magnificent chandelier you've ever seen. And I'm going to get Jamie, her sister, to sneak into her room and like I'm going to write a card and she's going to put it out. And I'm going to be in Europe, but she's going to get her birthday present, the chandelier for dreams. So I Googled and I researched chandeliers. And mind you, I'm a dude. When I think of a chandelier, I mean, Nathan, you know, you same thing. It's a chandelier. It's what hangs over the dining room table. The bigger, the better. You know what I'm saying? I don't care what she does with a chandelier. I'm going to buy her the best chandelier. $400 chandelier, by the way. I looked up a $400 chandelier. That was my paycheck for about four months. So I looked this thing up. I ordered it, and it came in. This thing was awesome. Oil rub bronze. It had these like light bulbs that came out and looked like candle. This thing was sweet. I got it in. I was like, man, I want this chandelier. You got to hardwire it into the ad to the ceiling. I was like, this is legit. So I got it in the box, and I gave it to Jamie, and I said, hey, will you help me? And we did this thing, and I am off to Vienna, and here I am. I'm, I'm just like, dude, she's going to love it, man. This is going to be great. So I get home and I'm waiting for the big reveal because I never told her and there's a thing. And I figured she'd like message me like, hey, I love the gift. Oh my gosh, will you marry me? Right? I figured she'd message me that, but she never did. So I was like, oh, that's okay. It's, she's busy. So I get home and she doesn't mention anything about it. I said, hey, did you, uh, did you get the present? She said, yep. I was like, okay. And I said, well, chandelier, right? Remember you were telling me and I did the thing. I mean, I'm expecting a proposal right then and there from her to me uh, for the chandelier. And it doesn't happen. And I said, you, you like the chandelier? And she said, Jason, I, 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 I don't like the chandelier. And I said, what do you mean you don't like chandeliers? Aura Bronze has all this. She goes, I wasn't talking about a chandelier to hang over a dining room table. She was like, I was talking about one you plug into the wall. It's like a, like a nightlight. I said, oh, so this isn't cool? She said, no, it actually kind of freaked me out. And I was like, oh, okay, so we salvaged that, and it's no big deal, and we laughed about this in our marriage, and a couple years in, she goes, no, Jason, you don't understand, like, I was just going through my head on the words I was going to say to dump you the next day. And I said, really, this was that bad? She said it was that bad. I was like, it's just a chandelier. By the way, I still have that chandelier, and every time we sell to move the house, I put in the contract, I'm taking the chandelier, and I do. I still have it. And this chandelier, she hated it. I thought it was going to be the best thing for our relationship, and she hated this chandelier. But it was just something I was trying to add to our relationship that was going great, right? And I think this passage tonight, in a sense, it's a lot of our chandelier-type moments with God. Here's what I mean. A lot of times we do the same thing with God that we do with other people. You do similar things. You might not buy a silly chandelier. But there are things with God that we like, maybe we have, some of y'all don't have a relationship with God. That's okay. Hang with me. I'll talk to you about that. But some of us that do, like, we have this relationship with God. We didn't do anything to earn it. We received it. But then somewhere along the way, like, we feel like we need to make it go further faster. It's just not good enough. I haven't felt it or haven't experienced it or something. And somewhere along the way, we have this chandelier type moment where we try and add to a relationship that's already, in this case, perfect. You ever do that? 
You ever feel like just something's off, something could be better. I wish or I'm missing out or my friends have a relationship with God that's like this and I don't feel like mine is. And, and, and we try to add something to it. Specifically in the passage, they're doing the same thing. They're adding to the grace of God and it's ruining everything. So much so that they have to give attention to it. They're adding their own secret sauce to spark the relationship they already have with God. Uh, one pastor, John MacArthur, said this. He said that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if you change the equation, you ruin it all. Mark Driscoll, the old pastor, he said this. He said Jesus, um, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Because there's something about our faith that's easy to understand, but it's hard to apply and live. It's that Jesus plus anything ruins everything. And that the second you or I try to add anything to it, it's ruined. Yet we just naturally gravitate towards this. We add things all the time. And so here he is saying, we're going to, we're going to identify three things that, that he says we're not going to add. He goes, legalism. He's going to start in the first part of the verse. The, the pericope says legalism, we're not going to, you can't add legalism to it. Legalism is this moral effort to make you feel closer to God. That he's going to love you better by some of your own morality. Right? And then he's going to talk about mysticism. This experience or this emotion that if you'll just feel it, right? I just don't feel close to God. Great, let's change that. Let's make that better. In their case, they're going to worship angels. And they're going to have this mediation between angels and God. And there's something. In our case, we would call it an extreme, like a charismatic, extreme charismatic movement. It's a feeling, and if you don't have the feeling, you're a junior varsity Christian. Um, and then he's going to talk about asceticism, that if you just like punish yourself and self-deny, then that is what the pursuit of holiness is when you do those things. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to refute this idea that we naturally drift towards trying to add to the sufficiency of Jesus. Easy concept but hard to understand. Because, listen to me, tonight, if you can just follow this passage, here's my one hope for us, that we could see the beauty of this incredible masterpiece, masterpiece that is grace. This incredible masterpiece that God says to you, I have fully satisfied all the works of the law that you could do, I have fully satisfied every desire in you. I, God would say, am all in all, fully sufficient in Jesus. What if we could allow that to sink into our hearts to a level where we believe with everything we were that Jesus is enough? Just him, nothing more than him, and all of him. That if my security and my identity and myself, all these things just found in Jesus... But every single day, there are things that speak into us that we need to add something to it because it's just not doing it for us. And he goes, and he's starting in, in verse 16, and through this, he's going to simply answer this question, that you and I are incapable of adding anything to the sufficiency of Jesus. I was incapable of adding anything to the relationship I had with my girlfriend, and when I tried to do it, I almost ruined it. God's the exact same way. He, you're incapable of adding anything. Listen to me. You are incapable of adding anything to your relationship with God because he's already given you everything. Yet when we do, we actually ruin it. Not to say we ruin it like your salvation, 
but there's this relational aspect that, that's ruined in that. And he starts in verse 16, and this is what he says. He says to you, therefore, so, so therefore meaning, what's the, what's the therefore, therefore, if you're a Bible scholar, pay attentioner, because of 8 through 15. Because in verse 8, like Jake talked about, no one takes you captive, go to ver look at verse 8, no one takes you captive by philosophy of seed according to human tradition. No one captures you by saying, following these human traditions is getting you close to God. No one does that, he says. And he goes on to talk about the sufficiency of Jesus. So therefore, because Jesus is sufficient, because Jesus is all in all, because Jesus is fully God, fully man, sacrificed for you because everything is found in him. Let me tell you something. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. This is the false teachers of the time. These are the heretics that are coming in and saying, you've got to, it's got to be Jesus plus something. There's these three things, legalism, asceticism, mysticism, that that's what you have to add. And he goes, no, no, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food, drink, uh, festival, new moon, or Sabbath. He's talking about these religious efforts. He's talking about Judaism. He's talking about daily food. Don't let people pass judgment on you every day on what you eat and what you don't. So, you know, Levitical law, what's clean, what's kosher. Don't let them pass judgment on you on a daily basis. And, and then he goes to, to um, festivals. These are seasonal. These are weekly. These are these are a little longer period of time. Then he goes on to uh, new moons, monthly. Then he goes on yearly. No matter where it is, he goes, no matter in this religious system, because listen, he says, no one passes judgment on you in these things. You know why? Because this. Um, we try to say that what we do determines our relationship with God. Listen to this for a minute. Because he says, don't let them pass judgment on you and what you do. So listen for just a second and humble yourself with me. We try and say that what we do determines our relationship with God. The other side of that is we try to say what we see others do can give us a great fact of their relationship with God. What I do does not determine my relationship with God. Rather, my relationship with God determines what I do. Can you be doing, you and somebody else, be doing the exact same thing and one of you be in sin doing this thing and one of you not? Absolutely. What's the difference? It's not here, it's here. Can you be serving in a food pantry for homeless people and be in sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? I'm going to do it so I get accolades. I'm going to do it so that people see me. I'm going to do it so that this girl will go out with me. I'm going to do it for these reasons that are what this. Am I in sin? Absolutely. Can I be serving that same place and be out without sin? Sure. What are my motivations? Love of Christ, love of people, whatever. So it's the same thing, but it's a heart issue. It's not a head issue. And so he says, look, don't let them pass judgment on you and what you do, because what you do doesn't determine your relationship with God. Your relationship with God determines what you do. Don't get it backwards. These, he said, these things, all these festivals, these Jewish festivals, these, the Jewish kosher, new moons, these, these monthly things, the Sabbath, the, there's your weekly, the, the weekly Sabbath. He said, all of these things are, in verse 17, they are a shadow of the thing to come. This is such a beautiful verse. He says, don't let them pass judgment on what you do, but realize they're a shadow. They're a shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs 
to Christ. They're a shadow. They're a dim outline of a cross in their own way. Uh, What it means is this. If you were to go into the epicenter of Jewish worship during their time, it would be into what we would call the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is this cubicle room, and uh, you would, it would have a veil. On the veil, there's some cherub angels. Cherub angels were a certain class of angel. Their job was to be defenders of the glory of God. Um, so they're the angel placed in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, right? And so inside the Holy of Holies, you would have uh, the Ark of the Covenant, don't worry about it if you've never heard of it. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there are three things. One's really important. Uh, one's the rod of Aaron. Uh, leads him out. The other's manna. Don't worry about those if you've never heard of them. And the other one, you've probably heard about this one. It's the Ten Commandments. So that's what's inside this Ark that's inside the Holy of Holies, that's inside the temple of which they would come and sacrifice and worship and all these things. On top of the Ark, there was a table. And the table was, was made out of stone. And on top of the table, it was called the Mercy Seat. The Mercy Seat on both sides had two angels, cherub angels, that would sit on, not, not real angels, but, but stones of angels. And they would sit there, and that's how the Ark looked. And when you went into the Holy of Holies, once a year, if you were the high priest on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, you would go in as the high priest. You know what you would do? You would take a lamb and you would slay it or the animal and you would take its blood and you would sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat once a year as the high priest to to pay the penalty of the atonement for sin. And at the epicenter of Jewish worship, this was the day of atonement. As if to say, when God now looks down from heaven and sees his standard, the law, by which he's requiring all people to achieve, he no longer sees just the law, but he sees it through the blood-splattered sacrifice of the lamb, and he passes over the sins of the nation. Because it's a shadow. Is that practice the fullness of Christ? It is not. But is it a shadow of a high priest who will come in and shed his own blood that through it the law would be satisfied in him? It is. It's a shadow, much like the women fast forward to a resurrection day when the women come to the tomb and they come in and the tomb is empty. They come into the tomb where Jesus was laid and then they look on the tomb and there is a stone table with two cherub angels, real angels this time, and in the middle there is a blood-laden cloth that was wrapped around the body of Jesus and now it lays on the ultimate mercy seat as if to say, here's your shadow come to life. Here's the shadow come to the fullness that no longer will there be a mercy seat and a day of atonement as in it was in the Holy of Holies, but this day of atonement has happened in its fullness. And this Jesus has died once for all. It's not a shadow anymore because the fullness of Christ has come through his death and his resurrection. So Paul says, don't let anyone judge you on these religious things. They're a a shadow of what's to come. If you just get it here, he says, it does nothing for you. Legalism will do nothing but bring you guilt or bring you arrogance. You know why? 
because you'll either think you achieved it and you'll be so arrogant nobody wants to be your friend or you'll always fail and you'll never achieve it and you'll feel so guilty and so helpless you'll give up on this whole thing we call Christianity. And so legalism does nothing but drive us away from the relationship already given in God. Buying a chandelier and being stupid and trying to force things did nothing but almost get me dumped. You see, you, you add to a good thing because you think you can make it better. Do you really think that you can make better the perfect union between you and the creator of the cosmos through any effort of your own? No. And when we try and when we fail, we'll feel guilty and we'll feel burdened. Then what will we say? Well, I feel so dead now. Me, I tried. And even after I tried hard, and it still didn't work. No, your efforts didn't work. Why do you think God would not allow your efforts to work? Because maybe he's saying, stop trusting you and trust me. Maybe it's not about the education you have in your head of theology, but about the heart surrender to Jesus to go, I'm incapable of adding to this thing. To say these two verses another way, not just so you would say you're, in, you're incapable of adding legalism, but to say them another way in verse 16 and 17, you can say it this way. You're incapable of winning God's love. So stop trying because you've already won full love. Okay? So he says these things are a shadow because you hold fast to Jesus who's the Christ and, and the substance belongs to him. He is our high priest. Hebrews says this, For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form, it can never, the law, by the same sacrifices that were continually offered every year, Yom Kippur, I just showed you, make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because Christ fulfills all in all. Christ is this. Now, you may be legalistic by nature. Usually legalistic people are really great people. Legalistic tendencies usually come to those of us who are, well, you, I'm not as smart as you probably. Those of us who are smart those of us who are disciplined, those of us who have values, um, those are good things. Don't chunk all those. i got to be an idiot. No, but we have a tendency, if that's us, to be legalistic. Now, if I could give you 20 things that make you a legalist and say, don't do those things and you'll be okay, um, it'd be legalistic to give you those. I'd defeat the purpose, even if I could, but I can't. So i give you a few things that, if, that you might need to check your heart if this might be you, and they're these. Um, if you do things that you would call like for the Lord or religious or, or whatever, churchy, whatever, if you do these things for your own glory, you probably struggle somewhere along the line of legalism. If you serve in ministry, if you show up here, show up there so that you'll be seen and you'll get praised, if you learn the Bible so you can go show somebody how smart you are in the Bible, you probably struggle a little bit here. Um, if you want just control of life, and that control of life includes control of your relationship with God, and when it doesn't feel good, you've lost control, so you've got to regain control. If you struggle with control when it comes to your relationship with God, you probably struggle with legalism. 
That's how you're going to control it, is through legalism. Or if you actually think that you can attain this legalistic standard, you probably struggle with legalism. But it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue because you're incapable of winning God's love. You and I are incapable of this because it leaves us disappointed. And in verse 18, he's going to go on to say, you're incapable of of furthering your relationship with God through mysticism, or another way to say it, you're incapable of replacing God's plan at salvation and sanctification. Salvation is the moment you receive Jesus and you become saved. Sanctification is the process, we'll say. There's different ways to explain it, but process of you becoming more holy, process of you becoming more like Christ. And so sanctification starting, and here it goes, but, but um, he, somewhere along the way, you can't change how God does that. You can't change the process in which God's placed. The process is the plan of God. So in verse 18, then he says, let no one disqualify you. So now he's, he said, don't let anyone judge you because the sufficiency of the fullness is in Christ. Now, don't let anyone disqualify. You have NAS that say defraud you. I love the translation of NAS. Let no one defraud you. Let no one take away. How are, they, how are you doing? Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on about details. We'll talk about asceticism in a minute. Puffed up and uh, without reason by his sensuous mind. Don't let anyone take away from your faith by insisting on some sort of secondary experience. Don't let anyone take away from the simplicity of the gospel to say, yeah, that's great, but the second blessing is even better. Don't let anyone take away the fullness of Jesus telling you that you're junior varsity because you haven't experienced something. Uh, Modern day, if you've never spoken in tongues, you've never experienced the fullness of God. No, no. No, 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 no. They're saying if you've never been spoken to by the angels like we have. So he says it's not an experience. If you're waiting on a feeling for, to come to you, you are waiting on something that's mystic. Uh, this is not something that is, that is true Christianity. It's not a feeling. It's not based on a feeling. It never will be based on a feeling. It's based on, an, on a sufficient act of Jesus. That's a lot of us, like, we're like, I don't feel close to God. You ever do that? And so what will you do? You'll insist on asceticism, mysticism, and legalism to try and get the feeling back, right? It's kind of like, I don't feel close to my girlfriend or boyfriend today. Why? What changed? Well, I made them angry. Did you? Okay, so you make another human angry, and all of a sudden you don't feel close to them because they call you a moron, and they really think you're a moron. Okay? So then we want a feeling back. Let's just say boyfriend, girlfriend, right? So what do we do to get the feeling back that we no longer have because we made them mad? We make them happy. So how do I make them happy? I don't know. Different things, different people. I buy them a Corvette. Now they're happy. Thanks. And now my boyfriend and my girlfriend is back in a good feeling with me, and I'm happy again because they're happy with me. But guess what? I'm not in that relationship for any good reason because all I'm doing is manipulating the circumstance so that they'll like me and I'll feel good about myself. Now apply that same logic to God. I feel distant from God. I don't feel close. Great. Why? He must be mad at me. Huh. I know. I'll give him something. What are you going to give him? He spoke the world into existence by a, by a word. 
He says to Job, have, have you seen where the deer, like the, the young are raised? Have you seen the deer giving birth? I have, all of them at one time. Do you know where the winds go? Do you know where they reside? Do you know how it changes? Do you know the cosmos? He says, I do. I spoke it and it appeared. What are you going to give him? You see, we apply the same logic. We don't intend to. We don't go, oh, we'll go buy God a Corvette. But we just intend it. We go, I don't feel close to what I'm going to do. He must be mad. There must be something wrong. I know I'll fix it by doing something to make it right. So what's the error? Not in the girlfriend, boyfriend, but in God. The anger of God was fully satisfied in his son, not you. Can God be displeased with you? Absolutely. Does the wrath of God fall on you? Absolutely not. Ever, no matter what you do? Absolutely. Ever, no matter what you do. So don't let someone take away, defraud this love of Jesus. Don't, don't let this happen. Don't let someone take away. Don't let someone cheat you out of this. Guys, listen to me. Listen to me. Look right at me. Look right at me. If you've heard nothing I say, look right at me. This is what I'm saying. We're saying the same thing over again. I don't care that it's in your head. I care that it gets your heart. I'm going to try again and again and again and again. And I'm going to say the same thing for 15 more minutes. But look right at me. If you don't rest in, receive, and fully know and believe the full grace of God given through Jesus, you are being cheated. You are missing out. And it's not when you go, yeah, I understand it. You've got to live it, believe it. And there's an element of grace that is hard to grasp. You know why it's hard to grasp? Because of the words you say in your mind that nobody knows in that moment. Somebody cuts you off on the highway or whatever. It's those thoughts you have at night that nobody knows. It's that thing you're doing that no one on earth knows, nor they ever will, because you will go to your grave with that secret. It's those things that will eat your soul alive. I don't really mean that. I mean that like poetically, like it will eat you alive. Why? Why? Because you don't believe that if you brought that to light, God's grace would still be sufficient. And you don't believe that your brothers and sisters in here would also believe in the same grace of God that would see you as a forgiven, loved son or daughter. So you wouldn't dare bring it up. Why? Because if I make my girlfriend mad, she don't like me right now. So if I bring this up, I can't lose God. You see, it's twisted, isn't it? Tell me I'm lying. You know why I know I'm not? Because I have the same thing. You see, this is life for us. But if I can help you understand God's grace by showing you this over and over, I'll do it because I don't want you to be cheated out of the greatest gift, which is grace. He says, they're going on in details about visions. They're puffed up without reason. They're telling everybody, I have a close relationship. I feel God. I see God. I hear God. I want. Great. Now I don't, so I don't feel like I know God like you do. He says, no. But if you're doing this, let no one take away. But here's how you, you guard that. He said, let no one take away because they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Most important verse in the passage. Your, the word head is capitalized. It's Jesus. 
Because you hold fast to the head. So here's the logical question next. Great. I want all those things. I want to experience grace. I don't want to do that. What do I do? I know that's still the problem that we're dealing with, but here's your answer. You hold fast to the head. You hold fast to Jesus. Let me explain what that means. You hold fast to Jesus. You hold fast to Jesus. You stand fast with Jesus. It means this. Let me paint this for you in a few different ways. Um, one of my favorite, sorry, I'm totally geeked out with this stuff, but I used to be, I haven't done it in a long time because I have kids and we watch like, Smurfs or something, I don't know, but Lord of the Rings, um, there's this great scene, if you've never seen it, like all these nasty orcs or demon guys are, you know, they're about to come in this castle door, and they're about to get defeated, and Gandalf, he's the white wizard, you know, if you haven't seen this, just, what'd you say? Thank you, Orakai, yeah, yeah, the Orakai demonic plague of, we are buddies, I knew we were. See, I wish we had known this at lunch the other day. We could have had, it's totally geeked out. But, so they're, they're at this door, and like the orc are about to come in and kill everybody. And Gandalf comes to the door, and he's like riding the horse down the city walkway or something. And he gets to the bottom, and the, and the, and the knights are like shaking. The orc high's busting down the door. There's like these goblin things that are about to come in. And Gandalf like slams something on the ground, and he goes, hey! He, said, he says this line, he says, no matter what comes through that door, you will stand your ground. And I'm like, in the movie theater, yeah! You know, like back in like 1987 when it came out. I was so excited. And I still picture that no matter what comes through that door, I'll stand my ground. You know what he says? Hold fast. Hold fast. You stand. Gandalf says, stand next to me. This is what it means to hold fast. In your life, no matter what comes through that door, Jesus says, stand your ground. Stand next to me. I know your family situation's hard. Stand your ground. Stand next to me. I know the pain you go through, says Jesus. Stand your ground. Stand next to me. Holding fast to the head who is Jesus means we stand our ground. We stand next to Christ. Yeah, but it's dim in this world. It's a, it's a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. Stand your ground and stop complaining. Stand your ground and don't fear. You stand next to the king. What do you have to lose? What do you have to fear? You hold fast to him who is Christ. Yeah, but the schools are going and all this is going and oh my gosh, and I don't even know what love is love means and what do we do and what? Stop it. Stand your ground. Standing your ground doesn't mean you're an idiot and you're a sinner and you're stupid. That is what it means. It means you stand your ground next to the king. You don't move by him. And you know what will happen? Look at it. Stand your ground. Hold, head, hold that fast to the head. And then you'll be nourished. Knit together. Joints, ligaments, growth. That is from God. Not legalism, not mysticism, not asceticism. It's from God. Question, how do I get this growth in God? You stand fast to Christ, period. So what does that mean? It means no matter what comes in life, you hold to the teaching of Jesus. You hold to the love of Jesus. You hold for a passionate life found in Jesus. 
Every night I pray a few things for my three boys, and one of the things I pray is for their salvation. Another thing is that their life wouldn't be wasted with the trivial things of this world, but they would live for something great, which is the passion to live for Jesus alone, that they would hold fast. You hold fast to Jesus. So some of y'all know this. Um, I've, I've had a daughter. She went to be with the Lord the day she died. She, she died the day she was born. And uh, her name's Ella. And so when Ella was born, uh, there was this category in our lives that we didn't have. We knew she wouldn't be with us long. And you're developing this category of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I like have to, do I bury her? How do you do that? I don't know. And I don't, I, I'm her father, but and there's all these things and questions. You don't have them. And then you start just going through it. And Brittany and I, all we knew to do was just like plead with the Lord and say, Lord, we're, we're going again, another step. And here we go. We're going to this, another step. And we just kind of clung to Christ. And we didn't have the answers. And let me tell you, there was nothing that felt good about it. And let me tell you something else. I begged the Lord to save my daughter's life, and he didn't do it. I begged the Lord to give me answers and make it easy and make it clean, and he didn't do it. It was emergency situations for my wife and my daughter. It was, it was the worst of times for us. He didn't do anything I asked him to do. And when we go through it, like there's this, you just feel like at any moment, you ever felt this way, you're going to collapse and life is over and you're done. And I was waiting on this moment to come. And it never came and people would say to us, hey, your strength is amazing or whatever. And we would literally, not out of humility, but out of desperation, go, no, it's not. No, it's not. We're just holding fast to Jesus. I don't know what that means in that moment. But you know what I do know? Is that because of grace, I'm fully loved no matter what. You think I was angry with God and doubted God? Absolutely. And we read this verse in Jude, and it's at the end of the, the, the chapter. He says, now to him who is able to keep you. And we just wept and go, this is it. He is able to keep me because I hold fast to the head. Why? Because I have been sealed, signed, delivered. How do you make it through life? How do you make it through unknowns? How do you make it through these things? It's not with a knowledge. It's not with an effort. It's holding fast to Jesus. Because guess what he does? He's able to keep you. And through that, he nourishes you. If I had been had my wits about me, I would have said, Look, we're just clinging to Christ as best we can. And he's nourishing us through the process. I don't know how, and I wish it was different, and nothing I've asked for has actually, the Lord hasn't answered those prayers in that way, but I know that he's kept me. That's our story. Guys, hold fast to Jesus, no matter what. You're in this deep, dark sand, whatever, whatever, great, hold fast to Jesus. Yeah, but I gotta clean my life up and clean this first before I do that. No, you don't. If you wait for that, you'll never come. So he says, hold fast to him. This is what you do. And then he goes on, verse 20, last thing. He says, you're incapable by adding asceticism. Asceticism is self-denial. Oh, it's the monk that stands on a pole because he's punishing himself. It's the monk who wears a belt full of nails because he's bringing pain because of his sin. It's those types of things. And so this is what he's saying, is insisting on asceticism, insisting on asceticism say that five times fast, 
If Christ, who died to the elemental spirits of the world, so back to verse 8, remember Jake taught that? If Jesus died to the law, meaning he fulfilled the law and he died to that, why on earth are you still being bound by the things that Jesus has conquered? In other words, he set you free. Why are you going back to your captains? Right? Wait a minute, listen to me. If Jesus truly died for your sins and he's full of love and full of grace, and if he's all in all and he's fully sufficient, why on earth do we go back to the law or to morality or to anything therein to define my relationship with this God? Because it's natural for us. Because it's hard to get out of. He says this, there's a phrase they would use, this, and he kind of throws this back in their face. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That was their motto. Listen, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's godly. So Paul says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Oh, by the way, referring to all things that are perished as they're used, all these earthly things that matter not, according to human precepts and teachings, of course. Verse 8, right? He's going back there. According to those things. Then he hammers them with this. He said, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom. Verse 23. Don't they? Man, it sure appears wise for people who are smart and just seem perfect and life's knit together and they've got it all and they got their own podcast and they're an influencer and all of this stuff. He goes, it sure looks wise in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. It sure looks good. That monk over there, he can do that. That person, man, they deny themselves, man, they do this. It looks good to the human eyes. But listen, he says this. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You get it? He says, by you trying to stop the indulgence of your flesh, it has no value in stopping the indulgence of your flesh. Why? Because you've got to hold fast to the head. If you're trying to stop the indulgence of your flesh, insert whatever you want there, by denying yourself the indulgence of the flesh, without holding fast to Jesus, you will fail, you will feel guilty, and you will say it didn't work. He says, no, you look wise. But in reality, it's not, you're not capable of doing it. So here's the problem. So here's the problem is that legalism, asceticism, mysticism is this yoke placed on us that ensures failure because of a lack of true understanding, belief. It's a daily grind of grace. It's hard because you drift out of grace. Um, this is when Paul, in Acts 15, he goes to Jerusalem Council, and this is the conversation at this council. Hey, if, uh, if we got all this stuff going on and, and, and Jesus is coming in, great. We also think circumcision and these other things, like some of the law, are good, Right? And Paul, Paul says this, he says, we, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than the gospel. Jesus says, come to me all who are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Okay? What is the yoke of Jesus? Grace. Listen. You're incapable of achieving relationship with God, of winning his love, of changing his plan. You're incapable of achieving, of achieving any measure of righteousness. He says, your good deeds are like filthy rags to me. The best you got is despicable to me. 
So why do we measure our relationship with God with something we can't attain and set ourselves up for failure? Because somewhere in us, we just need to rest in grace and hold fast to the head. So what do you do if you're not there? You hold fast to the head, who's Christ. You give up and you surrender some control. You surrender some efforts. You surrender those things. You go, great, I don't have to like live for holy things anymore. No, but remember, those things don't define your relationship with God, but your relationship with God will influence those things. Because you have to realize that to hold fast to Jesus is the secret sauce to understanding his grace. Because in that moment, you're saying, if I lose grip of you, I'm toast. To him who is able to keep you, him who is able to keep you. The best picture I have in my mind of this is when my oldest son was about, I don't know, four, three. Jake, show me this first one. See, that's, that's my middle son right there. My youngest wasn't born yet. Ella hadn't been born yet. That's my oldest son who's seven on last Sunday. He's out in the middle of this puddle. Now, we were in Avondale Park in this picture, and this was 2017. I don't know if you remember, there was like this monsoon in 2017, and Avondale Park was, was flooded, man. You've been there, Hunter? It's crazy. And my wife, who I love to death, she goes, hey, Jason, you know what we should do? And I say, what? She goes, we should take the boys and just go jump in all the puddles in the park. And I went, I love you. It's because the chandelier in it. I get it. This is why you love me. So we go to the park, and there's this first puddle that we see. It's right out of the parking lot. The parking lot's right over here. And Cameron uh, immediately evolved into a T-Rex. This is what he did back then. He was a T-Rex all the time. And he had a game. He would roar very loudly. He would run into the puddle, and he would just crash down on his knees, and then he would raise his hands and roar again. <laughs> and so he runs into this first puddle, and he crashes down on his knees, and he roars, and they're just getting soaked. And I'm taking pictures, and I'm loving it, and it's so good. And then we go, uh, I think I have three pictures. Don't show the third one, show the second one. So we go to a bigger puddle, and now we're getting a little deeper. This is just a puddle in Avondale Park. And so we're getting deeper, and he's going, and he's running, having the best time of his life. I said, all right, Cam, these next puddles are a little bit deeper. Stand close to me. And he said, no, Daddy, I can do it by myself. I'm four years old or three years old, whatever he was. He said, I'm, I'm, how was he? He was four years old. He said, I can do it by myself. <clears throat> and I said, buddy, you know, stand next to me because I don't know how deep these puddles get. And, and they're dark and I can't see. And I mean, there's huge. And then we look out and there's a huge puddle in between the tennis court and like the pavilion over there. Huge puddle. And I was like, bro, let's go to the huge puddle. You ready? He said, yeah. And I said, Cam, come here, come here, come here. When we go to this puddle, you stand next to me because this one's probably deep. And he said, no, daddy, I can do it by myself. I can do it on my own. I said, okay, son. So he ran out and he roared and he hit his knees. He tried to raise his hands up in the air. And this is the moment I saw next. Look at that. That little sucker sank to the bottom of the puddle. That's a puddle. Now, of course, you're asking, how'd you get the picture? I took it before I saved his life. But yeah, I was like, oh, snap. That's son, my son's dumb. Yeah. So do not record that. If my son ever hears that, I'll be the worst father ever. Um, and I see this. <laughs> Sorry, I just read his flashback. He goes, Rawr! <laughs> it's like he's in there. Well, so the next picture I don't have because I, after I took the picture, I was like, oh, snap, my son's drowning. I launched my phone and I walked into the water and little Cam, man, I'll never forget it. He put his hands, I guess, down on the ground and he's trying to lift himself out of the water. 
and he could get this high out of the water, and I could see his eyeballs, but I couldn't see anything else. And that was the eyeballs of fear in that boy's eyes. And he was holding himself up, and his eyeballs screamed, Daddy, help. And I walked over, and I reached down into the dark little puddle. I couldn't see him, just about where that hat was. And I reached down, and I felt shirt, and I grabbed shirt, and I lifted him out of the water, and I'm holding him out of the water, and, I, and he is just, <gasps> and he bawls, and he's crying, and he's crying, and he hugs me, and he said, Daddy, I can't do it by myself because I sink, sink. I sink, sink. And I held him and I said, Cameron, when you go play in these big dark puddles, you got to stand by me. This is what it means to hold fast to the head who is Christ. We say, I got it, Daddy. I got it. Until we find ourselves in a deep, dark hole, and the best effort we got can't relieve us of the pain, and he rips us out, and he goes, hold fast to me. Some of you are drowning, and you're trying to pick yourself up, and you got your eyeballs out, but you're suffocating, and you can't breathe. Some of you are arrogantly jumping in your own dark puddles, and you think you're fine until the time that you're not. Man, if I could plead with you with anything... It's hold fast to the head who is Christ. Jesus plus anything is going to ruin everything. It's hard to get that to hear. Father, I pray that you would do just that in us, that you would make the reality and the truth of grace pierce us so deeply that we might know what it is to rest in grace and to hold fast to the cross, which is Christ. Father, for many of us, we still want an answer, and we want a step program to help us achieve this. But in the reality, Lord, we simply need to hold on to you, that no matter what comes, we stand our ground because we stand by the King, the resurrected King, that all of these things we try are a shadow of the things that are of Christ. And that you are sufficient, Jesus. And that you have satisfied the full wrath of God and sufficient in all things. Might we as a people believe that tonight and be changed for it. Amen.